Uh, morning, everyone. Uh, thanks, Mark, for leading us this morning. Thank you, David, for sharing. Brilliant. As Mark said, we're less than 24 hours to go. I think expectation levels in most homes are quite high. Expectations of what we're going to find under the tree tomorrow morning. Expectations regarding how the family, the wider family, are going to get on. Who's going to fall out with who at what point. Expectations around how the, the turkey or the meal is going to turn out. Uh, all of those, in no doubt, are on, more, are on the rise. Uh, if you've been with us during December on Sundays, you will know that during Advent this year, we have been highlighting and recognizing that this is a season of expectations. High expectations, unrealistic expectations, and every other kind. But what we have been trying to do ultimately is revisit and stress the importance of those great expectations that existed and were then fulfilled in the birth and the arrival of Jesus to this world and for this world on that first Christmas. So, for example, going right back to the first Sunday in December, there was this expectation that one day a virgin would conceive and give birth to a son, and he would be called Emmanuel, meaning God with us. 700 years down the line from that great expectation, it happened. And we then reflected together on the identity of that virgin, and we looked at not only Mary's part in the fulfillment of that expectation, but we also thought about Joseph, her partner's involvement, and how he was told by an angel the exact same thing about Mary and about their child as Isaiah had indicated centuries before. Then last Sunday at our carol services, we thought about the great expectation again from Isaiah, how people walking in darkness have seen a great light, how a light has dawned in them. For to us a child is born, to us a son is given. And centuries later, that expectation was fulfilled in Jesus, who was and is the light of the world, the light in the darkness, the inextinguishable light, the one true light. Today, I want to look at another great expectation, which relates to the location of where it all took place, because the birth of Jesus didn't happen in some random, as chance would have a destination. No, 600 years or so beforehand, another prophet called Micah one day said and declared this, but you O Bethlehem, Ephaphra, are only a small village among all the people of Judah, yet a ruler of Israel whose origins are in the distant past will come from you on my behalf. And so there was this expectation. As we all know, it was met because Jesus was born in Bethlehem. And so we do sing, as we did at the start of the service, O little town of Bethlehem. But as we turn to God's Word to hear how it happened there and what exactly did take place in that specific location, I want us to explore and hopefully learn from the broader story around the fulfillment of that particular expectation. And that's going to take us to Luke chapter 2. So if you have a Bible with you or on a device, can I invite you to turn there where Bethlehem is identified and named three times. And as we always do at Windsor, I invite you to stand for the public reading of God's Word. Let's stand together. We're going to listen to the first seven verses. In those days, 
a decree went out from Caesar Augustus that all the world should be registered. This was the first reg registration when Quirinius was governor of Syria. And all went to be registered, each, each to his own town. And Joseph also went up from Galilee, from the town of Nazareth, to Judea, to the city of David, which is called Bethlehem, because he was of the house and lineage of David, to be registered with Mary, his betrothed, who was with child. And while they were there, the time came for her to give birth. And she gave birth to her firstborn son and wrapped him in swaddling cloths and laid him in a manger because there was no place for them in the inn. Do you have a seat? So there we have it. That is how Mary and Joseph ended up in Bethlehem. And there were a couple of key people involved in making sure this was the case. There was a Roman emperor who decides that he wants people registered. And along with the local governor, he orders everyone to return to their ancestral town. And therefore, rather than stay in their hometown of Nazareth for the birth of their firstborn, Joseph is forced to take his heavily pregnant fiancée to David's city called Bethlehem because he was a descendant of David. So he had to go back there. Now, I'm going to say more about that young couple's actual physical journey tomorrow morning. But for now, the point is this, or one point is this, without necessarily knowing it, a couple of serious bigwigs are involved in fulfilling the purposes of God. These two critical leaders were instrumental in arranging the place where Jesus would be born and therefore helping to fulfill that great expectation. Now, I realize that Augustus and Quinarius probably had no idea about that. But if nothing else, it's worth acknowledging that God can and God does use anyone, including unlikely ones in different ways as part of his plans and his purposes. You just never know who God is working in or is working through. Possibly one of the reasons why we're taught to pray for our leaders. Anyway, it's while they, Mary and Joseph, are now in Bethlehem, now in the place where they were expected to be, that Mary goes into labor and she gives birth. But as with virtually every other aspect of this entire story, the circumstances are somewhat surprising to say the least. And so we read there that regular accommodation isn't available in that location in Bethlehem, even for an exhausted and expectant mom and dad. And, whatever, and wherever it is that they end up, and I know there's all sorts of ideas of where exactly did they end up staying. But whatever, wherever it was, the one thing we do know and can say with certainly, certainty is that the only place that they had to lay their newborn was in an animal's feeding container. And so clearly, they were forced to stay and to lodge with animals. Almost everything associated with the birth of God with us beggars belief. Apparently, a few years ago, there was a group of atheists in America who wanted to challenge the traditional Christmas story. They wanted to, in their own words, highlight the absurdity of it all. And so they launched this poster campaign which read, You know it's a myth. This season, celebrate reason. Now, at one level, when you read so much of the Christmas story, you have to kind of admit that it is unreasonable. 
I'm not for a second agreeing with the myth accusation, but I do get the fact that so much of it is beyond reason. Doesn't make a lot of sense. Like if this really is who the Bible claims it to be, if this really is who we believe it is, this is God. This is God in the flesh. This is the Messiah. Should he be born in such highly dubious and confusing circumstances to a virgin, to a poor young couple in some dead-end town amongst animals and with his first bed and his first cot, a food box? You can kind of see where this group in America were coming from, but for me, it is these very unreasonable, surprising, quite honestly absurd realities that makes the story so captivating, so arresting, so powerful, so genuinely believable. Anyway, that great Micah expectation is fulfilled from 600 years previously. He'll be born in Bethlehem. He has been. But as we read of the next two references to this location in Luke 2, if you have your Bible open in front of you still, the kind of surprising, unreasonable revelations associated with the birth of the child in that place, they just keep coming. Because, and Mark hinted at this in his prayer, because the identity of the first people to receive the birth announcement, who became the first people to visit this newborn, who became the first people to share this earth-shattering, life-changing news with others, their identity gets revealed to us, and again, it beggars belief. It's shepherds. The unreasonableness of the first Christmas just keeps giving. They are the first to receive, visit, and break the news. And I know, I know we know this, and Mark hinted at it in his prayer, but they weren't really the kind of people any would, anyone would have entrusted with anything, never mind all of what they were entrusted with. And so someone writing, and I've shared this before, but someone writing said this, at this time in history and in this context, shepherds stood at the bottom rung of the Palestinian social ladder. They shared the same inevitable status as tax collectors and dung sweepers. Some shepherds earned their poor reputations, but others became victims of a cruel stereotype. The religious leaders, they maligned the shepherd's good name. Rabbis banned pastoring sheep and goats in Israel, except on certain desert plains. To buy wool, milk, or kid from a shepherd was forbidden on the assumption that it would probably be stolen property. Shepherds were officially labeled sinners, a technical term for a class of despised people. And I've already made the point that God can and does use unlikely or unexpected people to fulfill his purposes. And so much of the Christmas story includes these kind of characters. And yet, as I say, that's the beauty of it. And for those of us who sit here this morning, you don't feel worthy. Who constantly look around, compare yourself to others and feel less than. Who can't imagine why would God include or use me. The Christmas story and the people involved stand as a classic and a constant reminder that we must never, ever limit what God can do with, what God can do through, and what God can do in anyone. Shepherds, the first to hear this breaking news, and how they hear it, again, is exceptional. It's unreasonable. They hear it from angels. 
But given the fact, as we've discovered, and Alison was reminding us this on Wednesday night, angels are all over the Christmas story. But despite that, I'm not going to dwell on them. But it's their message I want to look at again. It's their epic birth announcement that I want to repeat, which needs to be repeated, not just this Christmas, every Christmas. It actually needs to be repeated all the time. If you still have your Bible open, look at verses 10 and 11 of Luke 2. Do not be afraid. I bring you good news that will cause great joy for all the people. Today in the town of David, a Savior has been born to you, and he is the Messiah, the Lord. There's Bethlehem mentioned again. There's that great expectation fulfilled. But that aside, it's the rest of this, and it's a relatively short announcement, but it communicates, it reveals, it clarifies. Why is this time of year so significant? Why does Christmas matter so much? There it is. There's why. And first off, it begins, I bring you. Immediately, the personal nature of this message is nailed. And for whatever reason, as I say, these shepherds are the first recipients. They're involved. They're included. But as we quickly discovered, it's not only for them, but it definitely is for them. It's personal. It's for you. And it still is. Whoever you are, this is personal to you. And then secondly, it's good news that will cause great joy for all the people. And therefore, before these guys even hear what the good news is, they hear the nature of it, and they discover that it's not limited to some people, certain people, few people. I have no doubt that just like the rest of us, these guys were sick and tired of hearing bad news. Constantly hearing bad news that caused and created despair amongst so many, and therefore the prospect of good news that will trigger great joy for everyone, surely that must have set their pulses racing. Or at the very least, it grabbed or held their attention for a second more. And then the message comes. I bring you good news. For all people, here it is. Today, in the town of David, a Savior has been born to you. He's Messiah the Lord. At the heart of this good news is the announcement, is the breaking news that a Savior has been born. A Savior, a deliverer, a rescuer, a liberator. And for many people, these shepherds included, they've been waiting for this. They've been anticipating one. They'd been expecting someone like this. And now they've been told, he's arrived. He's come. Today, this is a real-time live event for them. But we need to remember and realize is that what happened on that particular day is still as relevant and as real to us today. Today. It's still today. And therefore, we need to keep the expectation alive. And I'll come back to that in a second. But Savior, Liberator, Rescuer, Deliverer of what? And from what? Well, given the baby's name or one of his names, which we have discovered that his dad was told to give him, we don't have to wonder off what or from what. And you are to give him the name Jesus. 
because he will save his people from their sins. So savior of what? Savior of his people. Savior from what? From their sins. You see, everyone needs a savior because everyone sins. Everyone is a sinner. But the good news that will cause great joy for everyone is that the Savior, our Savior, has been born. And again, notice the last two words, born to you. If anyone thinks the good news message of Christmas is irrelevant, please think again. Now, whether you accept that, I I recognize this, whether you accept that you're a sinner, and I know it's, it's not popular teaching to say that, but whether you accept that, whether you accept there's a Savior, whether you accept that that particular Savior was born to you, well, that, that's your shape. That's your call. That's your decision. But please, all I can say is, please know he's being born to you. And the announcement didn't end there because the Savior's identity was further revealed as we heard. It's, he's the Messiah. He's the Lord. And again, people had been expecting the Messiah to come. They'd been longing for him, waiting for him. And God promised he would. And now these shepherds are informed that lying down the road in a food box, wrapped in cloths, is the Messiah, the Christ, the anointed one, the Lord. Again, sounds unreasonable. Like, really? That's where he is? That's what he is? Sounds unreasonable, but this is the Christmas story. This is the good news. So how do the shepherds deal with it? How do they respond? Verse 15. The shepherds said to each other, let's go to Bethlehem. Let's see this thing that has happened which the Lord has told us about. I find it interesting how the shepherds realized it was the Lord who had spoken to them. Because actually it was angels. Angels had been messengers and mouthpieces, but these shepherds knew a word from the Lord when they heard it. Which is fascinating. So they know it's from God. And so they decide to go and see what they've been told. Do you and I know a word from the Lord when we hear it? Do you and I know a word from the Lord when we hear it? And if we do, what do we then do with it? Well, these shepherds go and see what they've been told, and and obviously they're not disappointed. They discover that God's word is in fact true. God's word does stack up. God's word is dependable. God's word is reliable. And so having gone to see, they then go to tell They go to tell others who this Jesus is. They go to tell others what the angel has told them about him. And so what we can only assume is that they go and they tell others that a savior has been born to you. He's the Messiah. He's the Lord. But that's not all they do. As we read, or as you read, if you read on chapter two, they head back to work. They just go back to their day jobs. They just go back to life. But they go back now glorifying and praising God for all they've heard and for all they've seen. And again, it's all about Jesus. The shepherds might have been the most unlikely 
people to be the first to receive the good news, first to visit the good news, first to share the good news. And maybe for some, I know that fact alone adds again, as I say, to the unreasonableness of this story. It just does not make sense. But on the other hand, what it ultimately reveals is that the birth of Jesus Christmas really is good news for all people, irrespective of position and profile, irrespective of circumstances and context, irrespective of background and behavior, irrespective of reputation and religion. And therefore, I invite all of us. I invite all of us to respond like the shepherds, to hear, to discover more about who Jesus is, to see him for ourselves, to tell others about him, and to just live lives of worship to God. And in a few moments, Mark is going to come and lead us in communion where we have another chance to hear. Where we have another chance to see, actually see in physical elements, the body and blood of Jesus. We have a chance again to proclaim, to share, to proclaim his death until he comes again. And we have a chance in a few moments to worship not just with our lips, but from our hearts. I mentioned earlier in passing that we need to keep expectation alive. And I know the great expectations we've been looking at during Advent have all been fulfilled. But this story, this Jesus, is still our greatest expectation right now. And we mustn't lose the sense of expectation that Christmas brings. And if there's ever a day to keep expectation alive, it's this day, Christmas Eve. And so let me finish with how C.S. Lewis closes his poem entitled Christmas Eve. Yet would it not make those caroling angels weep to think how incarnate love means such trivial joys to us children of unbelief no, it's miracle enough if through centuries clouded and dingy, this day, Christmas Eve, can keep expectation alive. Let's pause for a moment and just let those words ruminate, allow God to speak to us.